Welcome to another edition of Cloud Unfiltered. This is a special edition at KubeCon Europe. And today I have my friend Frederick here. Yep. <laughs> how are you doing? Doing well. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing really good. So, you know, it's funny because, we, you know, we run into each other all the time and uh, we have we have mutual friends and mutual interests in a lot of the in a lot of the same topics. You know, uh, I've I was a security engineer for 20 years. So, mm -hmm. so, you know, I'm definitely in the in the security realm and you're always doing things very interesting in, in the security area. I mean, what's what's top of mind for you right now? So uh, that's a huge question. Um, I mean, obviously the whole zero trust uh, stuff. And in fact, I'm giving a, a talk tomorrow on just trust. So like, yeah. ignore the zero for a moment. <laughs> ignore and the zero. Like, yeah, like what is what is trust? What is like because part of the problem we run into with zero trust, like, is not the actual framework itself, but the, the name Zero Trust, we have a lot of people who think it means, oh, well, we don't trust anything. But we know that's not true. There's something yeah. there you have to trust. And yeah. so so I'm trying to find ways to describe, uh, like, to help people think through. It's like, what is it I'm actually placing that trust in? Because that's where your danger is. Like, that's where if something goes wrong in, in one of those components, uh, that you have to understand what it is, why you're trusting it, to what extent you're trusting it, and actually reason about the trust. And then once you reason about the, the, the trust of what you're doing, then you can actually take better steps at mitigating it because you've spent the time to fully understand the, the scope and, and blast radius. So there's, so there's that. But for me, a lot of my time is also thinking about uh, things related towards uh, uh, software supply chain as well. Uh, like how do we, like there's a whole like shift left mentality um, uh, relating, but for me, it's like, how do we generate? Like, I can, I might say, hey, I ran the test, or I followed a particular process, but how do we actually show what what actually what we actually did, so we can provide it as evidence stand down the line, so we can work out what is in policy, or maybe we change the policy and we can work out that there's some that these particular things that we were doing before uh, need to be rebuilt or need to be uh, need to be looked at again to to help bring them back into compliance. So, so with so many things that are in, that are a part of that, how do you even attempt to start looking at that? Because that's like, you know, you think about it. There's so many different layers. You know, you, you have containerization, you have, you know, your pipeline, you have your software, you have all different types of software, you have, uh, you know, for that you develop with the different languages, you have uh, different, you know, package libraries. You have well, all this kind of stuff. Well, that's a terrible part because it's like you have to do them all. You, have, you can't ignore. You can't ignore them all. But uh, uh, re realistically, I, when it depends on where people are in their in their journey. So the the very first question I like to ask people when they're saying, "How do I secure my cluster?" or so on is. Well, have you taken care of the basics? Like just even simple things like patch management of, of the system. You'd be surprised how many people don't have patch management. Or they don't have an inventory of what they're of what they're running, and it's. I'm not gonna say it's okay to to not have those, but it's like if you don't have those, like be really clear about it, because then at that point you can take steps to to mitigate that. And then once they have that in place, and then we start asking like, well, how do we think, do things that are more advanced? Like. Uh, when it comes to zero trust, I the, the framework that I tend to use for people is uh, start with like there's different there's different frameworks like we read through the NIST information. There's at least three different general frameworks of zero trust. So one of them is like the micro, micro segmentation of networks, and a lot of companies have gone all in on that because they already had the software and the control planes to do that. That it was a relatively easy shift for them to do so. 
a more nuanced approach though is like well how do we drive uh, the actual identity into the applications and workloads that we're using so that when one workload speaks to another workload we can verify on both sides exactly who they are independent of IP addresses even cross boundaries like cross company boundaries depending on how you do it but if you can if you can just answer the question it's actually a question of uh, in distributed systems a question of membership are you a member of my of my system is yeah. like where it starts but a little bit more advanced than that now but if we can get to a point where you, we know getting back to that inventory yeah. if we know what uh, what your what is in your system and and we're able to then identify uh, what should or should not we can actually start to ask like what policy should we put that actually bind against those uh, against those and then we can start asking question how do we automate the provisioning, deprovisioning, or uh, observability of all of all of that, so that we can then work out well. Not only where are we, but where where are we going? And all of that starts with like just getting the same way with user identities. Like we we now assign a user identity to all mm -hmm. users. Uh, work if we can get a user identity in every workload uh, that is uh, that is unique and uh, and time specific. Like that that'll go a long way towards working out. Uh, how to reduce those blast radiuses over time and to help us further secure the system. Yeah. Now, now how do you kind of, um, I don't want to say correlate, but how do you kind of uh, match that up with, with, how do you match up velocity of application development with security? How does that, because, because on one side you have, you have these developers that just have to get it out the door as fast as possible. Yeah. And at the other side, you have this need for security. But then if you create more policy, a lot of times that will inhibit some of the, you know, some of the speed of development or could if you do if, if it's if it's done in certain ways, you know. So I, I got a good friend who shall, re, who, who shall remain unnamed, but I will but I will take his, uh, his example for that. Yeah. Yeah. So when you think of security, like, sure, you can go fast. So it's like jumping on a motorbike without any gear and just like hammering it. Uh, and yeah, you'll get a long way. But what happens when something goes wrong? It's like it's not it's not good. Um, and if but if you look at see if I I can use an, an analogy. Um, if you look at uh, uh, like race car driving, like NASCAR sure. and similar, part of the reason they're able to really push the envelope is because they have all of the safety gear around them, all the security there, so that when something bad does happen, and something bad always happens, mm -hmm. that they can walk away with minimal, hopefully no injuries at all, yeah. and uh, hop into that to the next car the next day and just really push the envelope again. And so it's so a lot of people think, oh, the security slows me down. But if you if you have it done right, then uh, it can speed you up. But the problem that we run into that I think a lot of what really bothers a lot of people is not that there's that they don't like everyone wants the security. No one wants to have a compromise. Yeah. The problem they run into is that the all of the the red tape. It's like the slowdown that occurs. And the way that I like to think of this is it's indicative of, well, possibly indicative of mature processes, but immature automation. So if you have really good processes, but you don't have a way to automate them, then of course it's gonna slow you down. And yeah. then of course, what ends up happening when you slow people down to that, to that point is they're gonna find ways to work around your policies and then they're going to put you at risk. So it's really important for there to be a, 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 a match between the velocity of the development teams and the velocity of the security teams. And it's a anti-pattern, in my opinion, 
to have a team where you've you've loaded all of these resources into the development and you starve the security teams from the, them being able to do their jobs because they're not going to be able to keep up with your development teams and then your development teams will literally go because out of necessity they will try to find ways to to go around the sure. the, the process like it's it happens at at so many different places yeah, that absolutely yeah so so has security where security lies shifted like who does what these days is it you know because now that now that you're obviously shifting left you know and that's i hate you know i hate these terms I, because they're so markety i do too you know? it's like let's like, call it what it is it's yeah. like let's let's shift you know it's so it's just it's, it's like shift responsibility yes it's like not my responsibility i wait but no it's just shifting for me yeah, to the right so let's shift that way yeah <laughs> you shift it to me i just yeah. you know i can't i don't know but um you know, like whose job is it to to implement the security process? Whose job is it to define the policy? Whose job is it? You know, like where do these where do you see these things? First of all, in a perfect world, but where do you see it now? Maybe and and in a perfect world. Okay, so that's a really great question. Um, this is context specific, so it depends yeah, yeah. on the organization. So absolutely, my little if if I make a little multiplayer snakes game and uh, and stick it in a, like a five dollar instance somewhere. It's like my, my security for that, maybe it doesn't have to be as strong as if you're doing like banking or, yeah, or yeah. something similar. Uh, but I, th so I think it really depends on the organization. Uh, I, I am bothered by the concept of it's not my problem. Like if you see something and it doesn't look right. Uh, I've I've actually have told teams before, like I've had some teams come in and talk about like, oh, they're doing this to us and they're having us do that. And I've actually have asked them, like, have you spoken to them about it and said like that this is really onerous to you because maybe there's a compromise, maybe there's something that that gets them what they need, but isn't as uh, isn't as uh, painful for you. So it really. I think the the real answer to this question is not to say like this is the model or this is the the path, but instead uh, it gets down to something a little bit more basic, which is that there needs to be effective communication between the developers and the security teams. And it's yes, they have this. Uh, w there is a danger of like if it's everyone's responsibility, it's no one's responsibility. So you still need to have someone there who says, "Have the things happened? Are have we hit the check marks?" And those people, ideally, especially in, in more sensitive areas, have to be someone different from the developer. But at the end of the day, it, it needs to really be a, a team effort, and there needs to be good communication between the both of them. And it really bothers me that a lot of development teams they, it's like they they meet up with the uh, security person and what they're doing is they're saying, okay, well, you're about this tall. So that's the brick wall and you jump yeah, over. Yep. It's like, how, can I vault over that <laughs> yes. at the last moment? But yes. really what they should be doing is uh, not treating security as a brick wall to tra traverse at the end, but instead like bring like a partner. Yeah. Bring them in as a partner, as a partner yeah. do design sessions with them, actually talk to them in the beginning. Yeah. And I've had teams that have pushed against this and say, why are we bringing them in this early? And it's like, look, to have the conversation with them. And, what they find is, again, getting back to that question before of like, how do you speed things up? That when it came time to deploy, that those teams they were actually ready to go. did that. They, yeah, yeah. They, were, they were ready to go. They were able to, to launch quickly and also have a more secure product at the end of the day because they brought in. Uh, but then you still have the other side where InfoSec and security teams often don't have the resources to That's do what effectively. Ask. Yeah, yeah like, like, like is the traditional security team, because when I was an IT director, 
the traditional security team was very IT op centric, yes. which means that they handled up to maybe the server level, maybe the VM level. That's about it. And and everything after that, Kubernetes, all that kind of stuff, that went to DevOps. Well, that went to, you know. I, but we're starting to see more holistic approaches, I think, now. Like okay. more and more companies are starting to look at it from the top down. They're not looking at it just as I need to secure the server and yeah. uh, and the hardware and then the rest is up to you. Like they're actually saying, okay, well, it's a whole thing from top to bottom. Yeah. Uh, in fact, in the more secure environments, we're actually seeing applications go all the way down to the TPM and you see this combination of like hardware security and software That's combined awesome. together, which is yeah, really yeah. amazing. Not too many places do that yet, yeah. but we're starting to see an increase in, in that kind of uh, behavior. But but at the end of the day, like we, you have to treat because you you could end up with multiple silos, like where you end up with multiple groups who are saying, well, I'm going to be in charge of this slice of security and that slice of security. But you don't have a an overarching strategy on how you're going to secure the the whole system, and that's incredibly problematic because then like you, you end up with scenarios where you have some device or some thing that is running and team A says, oh, that's team B's problem. And team B says, oh, that's team A's problem. Yeah. And that system is never is never properly taken care of. And that becomes the the entry point for your for your attackers. Yeah. So it, it really comes down to effective communication. And I tr like explicitly asking like who, who owns this, making sure you get that that understanding. And once you get that in place, then it becomes delegation at that particular at that particular point, but not just delegation. It also becomes a feedback loop. You have to have that loop saying, "Here's what's working. Here's what's not working. Here's what's increasing our costs." Because at the end of the day, uh, security is about economics in the sense that uh, how much, how many resources is a particular group going to spend in order to compromise a particular system? Uh, is not that we can fully predict that, but if you have a sense of like how sensitive what the stuff you're you're doing is, then that'll give you into some insight. Uh, again, like the advanced persistent threat is likely not going to spend all their time going after my snakes game if uh, in, in that five dollar instance again. Uh, but they I'm going after that now. Oh well, no! <laughs> I'm kind of shutting it down right after this. You, you got about the, yeah. <laughs> but um, but but realistically, it's like. You, you have to look at it from, from a cost perspective as well because any time you spend doing something is time you were not spending doing something yeah. else. And those feedback, feedback loops become very important because if you're not, if you, if you're not having those conversations, you're, you're very likely going to be wasting time in, in certain areas that it doesn't make sense to waste time or miss, in, miss entire areas just because you, didn't, you were unaware that there was even a problem there in, in the first place. Yeah, and, and, you know, being a network security consultant for, for a long time, you know, what I've learned from consulting is that there's a big difference in what companies really care about. Companies care about risk, not yes. security. And there's a big difference there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> so, so you know, it used to be, you know, when, when, when I was doing security, there was Code Red and Nimda yeah. and all this kind of stuff. And we would, you know... I actually created a, a reverse hack to, on on Nimda to, to use the same exploit and patch it. Okay. <laughs> but but um, so you were that person. Yes. Okay. <laughs> but but you know, companies would immediately be be like, oh, we got this. Now we got to do something. And there was like a really small window. Maybe you had like thirty days from the time of that hack until they forget about it, yeah. and the next thing comes around. You know, and so. So my question is, is, is our companies more concerned now or is it still the same? And, and what are they really, you know, what are they going to do with this? Yeah, I, 
I, that one, I don't know how to answer that yeah, properly. That's, that's, okay. that's a tough one, but uh, <laughs> but I'll take a stab anyway. I I think we're gonna see a I think we're gonna see a change uh, over time because we're starting to see some interesting things come out. When like use the U.S. government as an example, yeah. like they released their cybersecurity strategy recently, and one of the things they were talking about was liability of uh, companies who produce software. Uh, but they were very specific in how they worded it. And the sense that I got out of it, my, my interpretation, uh, it was that if a company was able to, de- to demonstrate that they're following good practices, software development, life cycle, and so on, then the liability would be different than, let's say, sure. that they w- were not doing the best practices and, yeah. and good things. <laughs> and so... I think that there's a whole thing there that we need that and also I think even here in Europe they're looking at it from a similar from a similar mindset and so I think that there's things that are going to happen that'll cause uh, companies to shift some of that mentality because literally, like you mentioned, it's risk. Well, yeah. if you if part of the, the risk is an increased uh, fine because of the liability, you you'll very likely not always, but you'll yeah. very likely see a, a shift there. Unless the fine's like five hundred dollars and they're like, ah. yeah, if it's yeah. tiny, if it's tiny, it's, then it's just the cost of operation. Yeah. So it, um, at fear of, uh, of upsetting people, it's like it actually does have to have some, yeah. some teeth for that particular. Yeah, approach to work absolutely uh, but also the the market itself also does have some because there's also reputational cost absolutely and even that's if the biggest one i think. i well <laughs> I, I agree with that and yeah. we actually see this with like even here at kubecon uh like we're very careful like we worked with all the keynote speakers and so on because for us it's like not just the reputation of the companies but also the reputation of the conference and so yeah. that reputation is really cross-cutting it's uh, it's not just like are you secure it's it's down to the point is like do i even want to trust that the pro like if you if you're not doing the ba- handling the basics again like the patch management is similar yeah uh, am i going to trust that you're actually dealing with my information properly in other areas or that you're giving me um, the service and the in the quality that, that i want and of course it's still contextual like video game versus something else yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh but at the end of the day like the the people people do care about their information they do care about um, absolutely the services and, and quality of things that they get so so i think i think there is a, a feedback me- mechanism there that um uh companies are are constantly trying to trying to address yeah and i, th- I think that because of like you know these these um big supply chain breaches and things like that, that's making people more cognizant of the fact. I mean, look at Log4J. I mean, that yeah. was that was huge. I mean, that was in stuff, that was in hardware and software. And, and you know, people thought it was just Java, but really people ab- abstract that into a C interfaces and other things and, you know, oh, so. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's, that's actually a really good example because we saw some really weird uh, behavior from that. Like, um, there was the uh, the person who maintains uh, the curl library who yep. started to receive messages from lawyers. I, I think it was lawyers who were sending him like, "Can you please tell us what's and what's like if you're affected by uh, by the log for shell uh, vulnerability?" And he uh, posted that online saying, "I." I no, I, I'm like we're like stop sending me these these messages, and like because and these are companies that had no relationship with them, and, and yeah. it's actually again talking about uh, about impedance matches. There is there's still a strong impedance match between a lot of companies that they don't understand open source, or I should say, not to say that there's bound to be somebody in, in, internally who who has some good knowledge of it, but 
many of the decision makers or their legal counsel still need help with it. And that's actually a really interesting space because uh, one of the things that there's several companies here in, in, uh, in KubeCon that I've had this conversation with where they've gone through the process of, uh, of helping their respective companies understand open source to, to set up uh, programs for it. And, uh, and there's a lot of interesting challenges that occur there, especially when they start talking with the lawyers. But the lawyers want to do the right thing for the company as sure, well. So they, so it's it's about having a clear message so that they can understand what uh, what the implications are. And again, back to to managing risk because that's also their job as well. Yeah. And so so I think that, but getting back to like the the concept of of uh, of trying to manage that uh, that risk it's like it's it's more than just like security it's like it's literally the whole package it's also your your culture how do you treat your employees how do you treat your contractors like it's the it's the whole it's the whole thing and how you how people perceive the the company from that perspective is uh, is going to be a combination of, of all these things not not just anyone not just any any one vector yeah, no, I totally agree. And to get back to to supply chain a little bit, because I know you're involved mm-hmm. in that, um, I think we had some interesting conversations about like, you know, it started out as like you know a software bill of materials or what they call SBOM, but now it's kind of evolved a little bit into uh, you know we need to attest, we need to yeah. figure out you know how do we trust this stuff. Where talk a little bit about how that is evolving in the landscape. So. <laughs> Well, SPOMs have been around for a long time, um, but they're really starting to, to pick up. Um, you, you can look at something like SPDX, see how far back that goes, yeah, uh, yeah. or look at, a, at how long uh, Dr. Alan Freeman has been working on it. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a whole career for him. And uh, when you look at something like the minimum elements that were pushed inside of the, uh, inside of the U.S. government, so... Uh, I got to work a little bit with uh, with Dr. Friedman and his teams on on some of that particular area, and part of the part of the idea was to produce something that was simple for for companies to to go through. So it's it's definitely not to the level that uh, that people want it to be. Uh, but if you start with something that's simple, it's like people can adhere to to something that's yeah, yeah. that's minimal, and then. Uh, my my guess as to what's going to happen again. I don't know for sure because this is going to be dependent on a lot of factors. Sure. But, but my my guess is that we're going to end up with uh, with an increase in these particular things over time. But even if it's not regulatory, we'll see an increase in demands from the companies themselves. Like end users will will demand better quality S bombs that are deeper and and have more information. But the thing with it is that SBOMs only take care of one particular aspect, which is like, what is the relationship between a package and uh, and a piece of software? It doesn't say it doesn't say very much about whether, like, if you have a CVE that, that you've linked to it, it doesn't say whether you're actually af- uh, affected by, by that yeah, CVE. Yeah. So there's a new thing called VEX, uh, V-E-X, that's designed to help answer that. So you could say like. We this CV came out and you're vulnerable, but you can then say, well, but we're we're not affected because of these reasons, and I think that um, things like that, as as they start to catch on, will will help with op- optimizing like where the security operation teams spend their time because they instead of chasing down every high level CVE, they can work out that hey these like yes we have to patch it, but that can be part of the normal patch rotation as opposed to this needs to be patched yesterday. Yeah. And let's see what else. There's also um, there's also uh, here in the CNCF uh, a project called Intoto, 
which is focusing on how do you attest the process. So like you could say uh, a build system went through, uh, downloaded the source code from a given location, it, it built the system, it ran these tests, produced these artifacts, and capture information about the whole process of how it, of how it did it. So, so we're also looking at various, uh, at various pieces that are not just about the, the SBOM and what's linked into it, but also the how something was built and uh, to be able to capture that information and preserve it and sign it so that it can then be validated in a future, a future time where let's say your policy shifts or let's say you find a, uh, a there's a bug in a compiler that uh, that affects your applications like just asking the question which pieces of software were built with this compiler is uh not not an easy thing to answer yeah yeah and, I, and one of the things um i always think of though is that when you have devops and you have a pipeline right people don't want to significantly alter that pipeline, yes. and if it takes a significant amount of time to to re-engineer this to have that process, they're out. Yes. So so so, is it easy enough to to add these things to your pipeline that it doesn't readjust that significantly? Um, <laughs> in my opinion, we're we're not there yet. Okay. Like there's. I would. I think the the best case scenario is going to be when we get to a turnkey solution, yeah. where it it just things just work. But I don't think we're we're close to that yet. But there are things that are coming along that uh, that are going to to help with that. So see if I can give one example. Uh, There's actually one that I'm personally involved with. Is there's a project called uh, Witness, which is designed to basically wrap like you run like Witness, and then you run and the build inside of it, and it'll it'll watch to see what the build is doing and produce mm -hmm. metadata cool. and package it up in Entoto, and then you can sign it and, and send it off. Uh, so there's things like that that uh, that are starting to come along, and we're not the only ones that are sure. uh, where uh, that are producing various forms of attestations. Like you have all the stuff with like uh, ChainGuard and the stuff that they're that sure. they're producing, and uh, all the stuff with SixStore that is helping to sign these type of these types of data. So it's so there's a whole ecosystem that's starting to come up that's coming around so that we can say we're building it on something solid and then we're we're putting the things on top of it so we can say that these are the attestations that we've that we followed that we did and provide that as evidence so that uh, end users can then make a decision whether they want to to trust that particular that particular piece of software or not and under and under what conditions so I again we mentioned at the start of this that it comes down to uh, to effective communication between uh, like the developers and security teams. You also look at that as effective communication between the uh, the vendors and their and their consumers, where if if we can provide that information to to end users and make it in an easy digestible way and still keep the quality up because you don't want the quality if the quality is too low then it becomes noise. But if we can keep that quality up and provide them with those attestations, then my I, what I believe is going to happen is that the companies will start to use that information to make the to make decisions on when to run things, when to rebuild things, when to shut them down, or uh, when a when a major vulnerability comes out to work out like where their what their exposure is. Where it's like, are you exposed? Go, let's go ask every team in these large organizations <laughs> as to whether they're exposed to this like log per shell, which is actually what they did. Like the mandates that went down and said, "Are you running log for shell? If so, answer this question yeah. here." <laughs> uh, and just to try to work out their exposure. And if we could do that in an automated way, that is high quality. 
like that'll th- that that'll change the industry in my opinion. Now you know, all of this sounds great, but if if you're working multi solution, multi products, doesn't there need to be an agreed upon kind of standard interchange? I had a whole keynote on this last, uh, no. last time. I, um, there's a yeah, I completely agree with that, and that's so. If you look at things like Intoto, it's a it's a standard, or it's a it's a, a standard is the wrong word. It's a framework. It's a framework. It's a specification. Okay. It's a well defined specification. Um, it, same same thing with uh, with Sigstore. Like, uh, there's no uh, right now. I don't think there's a standards body just yet. I could be wrong, but I'm not yeah. aware of one. And so, but in terms of in terms of specifications, like if you have a specification that everyone adheres to, it's the same with like uh, if you want to take an extreme, like look at look at HTTP, like yeah. everyone's adhered to HTTP, then what has that allowed us to do? Um, less extreme, but but even more relevant is look at something like the uh, the OCI uh, image format, like yeah. the fact that everyone is adhered to OCI within the cloud native space, or Open API or uh, Swagger or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> or gRPC. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, it it gives, it, but it gives something that people can bind against and yeah. then get that get that collaboration to and from. There is some risk in fragmentation as well, in the sense that. Different companies are going to try like producing the same information, the same content. Um, but at, at the end of the day, I actually, I actually don't see that as a bad thing. Like some people are really upset and like, oh, this is terrible. We have that. It's like, well, just let it play out. Let it do its thing. You know, it might be a little bit more pain early on, but who knows? Like maybe you might end up with an, with an industry adopting a specific standard, and maybe another one adopts another standard, which is uh, again not the ideal outcome. But, but at the same time, it's 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 one that we can it's an outcome we can live with that uh, still gets the end goal of knowing what's running in our infrastructure. Yeah, it's like the early days of Wi-Fi when there was all that non-ratified yeah. Wi-Fi, and it was like, yeah, it's kind of compatible. We'll see what what, what comes yeah, out. Yeah, like one one eight eight oh two point eleven G draft. Yes, and draft. it's like is there a it's draft like, on uh, there? It's like, oh, no. We might do this. We might yeah. not. No, that's a. Um, Man, there's so many memories there. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so many memories of things not working. Yes. <laughs> uh, but fortunately, uh, also because the specifications are well are well published, it also means that if you're in the draft mode, <laughs> uh, you, once a, a full version comes out, like you can actually write the converter from draft to non-draft, or with the converter from from one from one specification to to another. Usually, there's enough there that you can. You can reason about it, or even set it up so you just natively consume both of them and normalize them into your into your system's model. Which I think is going to be the the, the real outcome. I think will be multiple specs and uh, normalized databases that uh, that can do the uh, the linkage be, between them. So I was talking to Alex Jones a little bit earlier today about Kate Kate yeah, yeah, Kate's the, G, uh, GPT, and he he even said that he thinks that you know I was talking about that. Um, you know, because I'm always chatting about uh, supply chain and things like that, that he thinks that's actually a really good scenario for, for GPT because it's well-defined and that it could probably add some value to... to well, th- he's, he's not the only one who's thought of that. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure. Um, yeah, I... The the whole GPT space is definitely so. There's a there's a problem that GPT would be fantastic with, and so like if I if I have a if I give you a tarball and I give you like the Shock two fifty six with that tarball, mm-hmm. 
and you run it and you match it, you know exactly what it is. And you yep. know with pretty high certainty, like, yes, there's that point zero 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 whatever, <laughs> yeah. that it might be a collision. But, uh, <laughs> but like, practically, we haven't found one yet. Yeah, and so, absolutely. so you're pretty confident you can use that as, a, as an identity. Um, and we've actually do that on a, on a regular basis. But if you look at something like, I have a, a specific kernel version and and it's the output of that. It's like the compiled version of it, and I send that over. It's like you don't necessarily know, like, well, what was configuration? What was the like? I, me building a kernel and you building a kernel can actually turn out into two very different pieces sure. of software. Absolutely. And then when we ask the question, are, are these two pieces of software uh, like what's similar or what's different, or it's or maybe my software uh, has different metadata than your software? You have to have what's called an enti entity resolution, mm -hmm. where you determine that these two things are indeed the the same thing, or they're similar, or they're different, and, and to what degree. And so, I think that uh, models like GPT and similar could be used to solve that where it's fuzzy. So, yeah. like, I have a CVE. What does the CVE apply to? And where, like, all the CPEs are like all over. It's like it's a mess. <laughs> uh, there, and so. I think they can definitely apply for for that entity that entity resolution of trying to work out like is I have something that's like uh, fuzzily looks like A should I actually map it to A or not or should I map it as B yeah and, yeah and solve that specific problem that'd be it's it's gonna be interesting I mean I think those those worlds are converging and either you're in like you're it seems like there's no middle ground you're either on one side of the fence that really wants this stuff or one side of the fence that's that's like I don't want I don't want this in my life at all. <laughs> well, there's definitely two extremes, and yeah. I think that both extremes are very vocal. Yeah. Uh, but I also, again, let's go back to the to risk. So yeah. you have to ask, well, first, what is the risk, and also ask the question, what are we doing today? Like, is it better than than what we're doing today? Yeah. Uh, but at the end of the day, when you look at uh, at something that's that's like AI related. You, we have to ask the question as to who's running it, who's driving it, was who's that principal, like who's going to, like if if you drive a vehicle the, the, and uh, and let's say there's a there's an accident, there's almost always some some person or something that that liability is uh, is, is set to. And of course, there's some exceptions to this, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, but if there is it. But if we have that particular concept, and so, and I think we actually have the legal frameworks to cover much of this. Like, if you have a piece of software that starts to do something really crazy and starts charging people things that they should not have been charged for, it's uh, like there's legal frameworks in place that that help remediate this sure. uh, this issue. And I think that a lot of the issues we see, like we definitely have to work out as a society as to how to deal with this. It's it's a new, it's a net new thing that we have to learn, uh, that we have to learn how to deal with. Uh, but I think that uh, part of the answer is going to be looking back at, well, like when the internet came around, like yeah. we had to, I actually think the internet existing was much more disruptive to, to people's lives. I totally and, agree. And I think that trying to trying to reason it from reason about it in that perspective, it's like we have how do we make sure that we don't overextend the the frameworks, but at the same time we we do have a solid foundation that we can start with in terms of like this 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 model is still an application. It's still running on behalf of somebody. Is it producing an outcome that? That, that based upon the levels of risk we're willing to to accept. Yeah, so guardrails. You have yeah. to put guardrails. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and so I, I think that that's like that's the way we have to look at it. Is is similar to to other systems. It's like uh, this system is 
the thing that's scary is that the system can go off and do other things that are that are unexpected. That, that we don't have that explainability, and that unexplainability is really what uh, what makes people really worried about sure. um, about many of the outcomes. Yeah, like, and also you know you you have to be cognizant enough to to train the model the right way with yes. the right data because if you use the wrong assumption on that data. Then your whole model could be oh totally yeah. with, uh, with bias yeah the bias that you have inside of it and yeah. and the reality is that every model is going to have some bias in it somewhere because it's it is based upon it's like that's what it does is, yeah. it, is it learns the uh, the statistical shape of whatever it is you're looking at yeah um, there's actually some interesting uh, some other interesting problems as well especially when you look at model and training sets yeah. that people don't often realize which is those models are because they learn information about the training sets, they can actually learn uh, information, they can actually transfer information about what was trained on, so that when you, if you analyze the, the resulting model, you can sometimes work out based upon, like you might have uh, your statistics, but your training set has highs and lows that are easily <laughs> visible. Yeah. Uh, and there's a whole set of, uh, new, of new techniques that, are, that have been under development to, to, try to, to try to deal with some of those. So, th so there's problems not only with what are the outcomes, but also like transferring the model. Are are we giving away private information as part of as part of the model? Um, one of the techniques uh, that people can look at today that is that is effective, but it's hard for to it's hard to implement sometimes is uh, is differential privacy. A uh, really good example of that is like we see this in polls sometimes. Like let's say that you have a very sensitive question you want to ask, and so. If you ask that sensitive question, you're going to get a skewed result because people don't want to admit to whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, of course. Uh, but if you put them in a private booth and they're confident it's private, <laughs> uh, and the instructions have say there's a coin and there's an instructions that say flip the coin. If it if the first uh, coin tosses heads, flip the coin again so it erases the initial uh, coin toss, and then you answer the question. If the first if the first coin tosses tails, flip the coin again. If it's if it's heads, you answer yes. If it's tails, you answer no. So when they come out and say, well, you answered yes to this. There's no, I answered the coin toss. So it gives what's called plausible deniability. Yep. And you don't actually learn anything about the individual, but because you know the... Uh, you know the frequency of what heads and tails lands at. You can actually, over a large enough data set, still get the uh, the shape of the, uh, hmm, of the population. That's really interesting. And so you can actually do this with uh, AI models. You can add in noise at the start and the end that um, that the noise itself is centered around zero. So the noise cancels itself out. And as long as you feed enough information into it and you don't pump too much noise into it, then you you can you're able to. Preserve the privacy. You're not able to tell whether something came from the data set or from the noise, but still get the uh, still get the shape of the model that you're looking for. It's almost like salt in, in encryption or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's definitely similarities there. Yeah, like something random you're tossing yeah. in to uh, to to make it more difficult to attack. So there's definitely uh, there's definitely a correlation there. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I think you know we're getting towards the end here, and I didn't even get to talk to you about like all the cool stuff you're doing at, at CNCF. So we'll have to have you back sometime. But um, this has been so interesting, you know that that I just wanted to talk, you know, talk about this stuff because it's stuff that I that I'm really interested in, and I think my audience will be interested in. But um, so the last question I asked, since we are at KubeCon, is you know you obviously see a lot. Is there anything that's really kind of caught your eye here, kind of kind of like, like, oh, I didn't even think of that, or there's some kind of new technology or something that really has been interesting about? 
Oh, there's there's always something interesting that that's out here. Um, one of the things I like to do is, you know, being uh, being a co-chair of the of the uh, conference is I like to walk around and and just ask like, what are what are you doing? What are you working on? Just yeah. to see to see what's going on. Um, I think the thing that really strikes me uh, as as quite interesting is we're seeing a lot more attention to long-term sustainability of the community. Uh, like today, we saw. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it'll be on. It'll be on YouTube by the time that you see this. Uh, uh, there's. She did a, uh, a whole thing on community and uh, spoke about how you have glacier, like a, like information that gets like added, like a glacier. And, oh wow. but, if, but if the as the glacier melts or as the information uh, is lost, as people they turn over and they go on to do other things. Like we don't have an easy way to like rebuild a glacier, or we don't have an easy way to rebuild the the knowledge base. And the, yeah. And so how do you sustain that? Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> and and so there's a, so she has a whole thing on that that's that's really worth worth uh, watching. But I think that we're we're at a spot in Kubernetes right now, and not just Kubernetes, but also all of cloud native, where um, the things that we're doing are much bigger than than just Kubernetes itself. We use our particular pieces of software in in many more uh, places than sure. than just Kubernetes, and it's we're and we're at a spot where we have to make sure that we're bringing in people for who are able to maintain this in the in the long term, and people are coming to the understanding that we we don't have an endless supply of developers. We actually have to work out where are we going to focus our our attention sure. to make sure, and also to make sure that. Uh, people are, are appropriately compensated as well for the work they're doing. Because it is real hard work. There's Absolutely. real stress there. People yeah. burn out. And yeah. um, and to make sure that people are, are not burning out, to make sure that, they are, that they're living, uh, I mean, granted, we can't make sure they're living the healthy lives, but to but to help facilitate or make sure that the environments are, are healthy. And I so I think that's probably the most, for me, the most interesting thing was actually not a technical, like not a technical, a That's okay. Technical thing, but yeah. actually more of a more of a community. I've actually thing. gotten more answers like that than anything technical. So you know that you're not the only one. So, oh well, I, well, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. That, val that validates my yes. uh, my my viewpoint. So. Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. All right.